ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Welcome back, and thanks for listening to The Game Changer, sponsored by Traveling to Give, a smart trip tool that helps you leave a legacy with every visit to your facility or your events. Let's join the interview now. Good morning. This is Chicky Fitzgerald with the Game Changer Network, and we have back by popular demand, Rich Sheridan. And Rich is the author of Joy Incorporated, which is the very first interview that we did. Gosh, I don't even know how many years ago it's been. Uh, but his current book is called Chief Joy Officer. And I couldn't love this one more, both from the title of the book the cover of the book. I'm a sucker for a great cover. And uh, it's got the words Chief Joy Officer all in bright colors. And then it's got uh, a very interesting icon uh, built into the title. And I'm going to let Rich address that. But this is all about how great leaders elevate human energy and eliminate fear. Like, Whoever would have thought that you would see fear and joy uh, on the cover of a business book, but here we are. I uh, would love to welcome you back, Rich. How are you doing today? Great to be with you, Chickie. It's uh, wonderful to catch up with you again. Well, it is. And what year did you do Joy Incorporated? Because I think I caught you right as that book was coming out. Yeah, it came out in December of 2013, so it's been a while. It has been. So, Rich, before we get into talking about the book, I really would love to have the thumbnail of you and not just the current corporate you, but, but really what led up to this particular moment, you know, essentially for such a time as this of becoming really the ambassador of joy in the corporate marketplace. Yeah, a lot of times my, uh, my now adult and uh, working daughters will ask me, dad, how do we get to where you are, you know, <laughs> um, in your work life? And I tell them, well, you have to understand there was about 15 years of deep pain that led to this. And, you know, for me, I, I, I grew up in technology. I touched a computer for the first time in 1971 when I was just a kid in high school. Uh, it captured me. I pursued it as a career. I, I got two degrees in it. I launched a what would the world would look uh, at as a very successful career starting in 1982. And yet as, as my career grew, as my uh, professional accolades increased and I got more responsibility, more authority, uh, greater pay and stock options and all the things the world measures as success, the problem was my heart was leaving the industry. I was so frustrated with the results that either I was producing personally or producing managerially as I was leading efforts of other people. And I knew there had to be a better way. And quite frankly, I was at times so despondent about how my 
accomplishments were progressing, the things I thought I should be able to do, the, the kind of work that I would be proud of. And that was so elusive for me that I was literally by my mid-30s wondering whether I'm even cut out for this industry. And uh, people know me as the chief optimist. And uh, the way I describe it is I was stuck in a room full of manure. And I knew there had to be a pony in this room somewhere. So I was determined to find it. I started reading books, not in technology, which was my forte, but rather on how to build better human teams. How do we organize people better? How do we get... uh, How do we get to that thing I now call joy, which is when we see the work of our hearts, our hands and our minds, even if hard, even if long, even if difficult, get out into the world and delight people, delight the people it was intended to serve. And that was what was eluding me. And so all of that led me to a a keen pursuit, one that I was very patient with. I just knew there was a better way of doing things and I was determined to find it and I didn't give up and Uh, eventually things all became clear. Maybe it was age, maybe it was age and wisdom, maybe it was age, wisdom and experience, I don't know. But suddenly around about 1999, I had a click moment and I knew where I was going. I knew how I was going to get there. I was a VP at the time. I transformed a tired old public company at that time. And the learnings of those couple of years as that that transformed VP uh, ultimately led me and my co-founder to create Menlo Innovations in 2001. And we have been in this pursuit of joy in the context of work ever since. Well, I, I will tell you that it had such an impact on me, uh, not only the interview of you, but, but actually dissecting your book and how it related back to me. And I had had a, a very, very similar epiphany um, I had spent the first third of my career in corporate life, and I knew I was a misfit. I mean, I just, uh, what I didn't know was that I was really a strategic consultant and an advisor, and, and I was that on an internal basis and became the intrapreneur before that was even a term, right? Um, and then I, I did consulting for a little over 10 years of, of really being a consultant on purpose. And I say that because there are a lot of people right now who are consultants just because they're in between yep. successes, right? Um, the accidental consultants when exactly, they lose Exactly, yep. exactly. So, so what ended up happening is I had that epiphany of, is this all there is, right? And I was a very successful consultant, multi-million dollar practice. You know, we built LasVegas.com and, uh, you know, worked for American Express and you name it. Uh, big brands in the travel industry, you know, we were there. But I remember so distinctly the day that I was moving out of my office and and I was moving home. Uh, We had just sold our office building and uh, I was cleaning out my files. And, you know, as I pulled out each client file, knowing that I had them electronically, it was like I was throwing them in the trash. And that gave me such joy. Because it was like, I'm never doing that kind of deal again. I'm never doing that kind of engagement. And, you know, it's funny because behind me, uh, those of you who are listening on audio can't hear this, but uh, since we all spend so much time on Zoom, uh, rather than showcasing my, my company, uh, I have decided to showcase what's important to me. And you can't see it, but behind me is a cross because my faith is such a big piece of who I am. Being a game changer is very important. It's not only the brand for the show and, and the book that I've written, but it really is my personal brand and what I want my company to be known for. 
Uh, and then there are a couple of uh, pictures that show my fearlessness as, as an entrepreneur. And, you know, I, I use a picture of me jumping off of a telephone pole to grab a trapeze and I'm afraid of heights. So the fear <laughs> component of your book just really intrigues me about how you address that in the current book. And, and then the last one is what I want to draw your eye to, which is uh, the picture of sunflowers. And every day when I look at that, I think of you because the joy piece of that and the sunflower means joy to me, right? Every time I yep. see a sunflower, yep. it makes me smile, right? But I think of Rich Sheridan because you let me know that it was okay to seek joy in the corporate setting. And I don't know why that was such an epiphany, but nobody ever told me that that got to, you know, that may, maybe you liked the people you worked with, maybe you even liked what you did, but joy, no. And so uh, as you know, from having been a part of my book and, and my book is written in allegorical style uh, where I actually describe uh, throughout my book, the culture of joy that you have really worked so hard to create. So with that, let's jump uh, right to the book, if you don't mind. And uh, I love that you started by talking about the fact that joy is personal. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, as, as I began carrying this joy message to the world, uh, it was very important to me. I would start to get this question from people. They'd look at me and say, Rich, where does your joy come from? What was, what was the kernel for this? And, and you know, I, I, had to, I had to think about that in the early days. Uh, I had to think about what does joy mean to me? Is it simply the camaraderie and the human energy of our team? Is it that feeling of getting to work? You can't wait to be there. And as I reflected on this, uh, I actually thought of a story because at first I thought it was, you know, that technical achievement, the, the, you know, let's write some great software. You know, there's a lot of joy in that. There's, there's right. that creative activity that you work hard for. And, you know, you could say we, we built this thing out of nothing and that entrepreneurial thing. And, uh, you know, and that started back when I was 13 years old. But the real story for me finally kind of was given to me back as a gift, a memory I had from my childhood. And it was back when I was about 10 years old. And my mom and dad, uh, we, we had a pretty simple upbringing. I had two brothers and, um, you know, just a, just a modest upbringing. And my mom had bought a new shelving unit to put in the, in the living room. And new pieces of furniture back in those days weren't as common as probably they are today. But it was delivered in a cardboard box. It was sitting out in the garage. And mom and dad went to dinner that night uh, out to a movie. And I was on my own. I was 10. And for some reason, I was possessed to build that shelving unit for them. And I went out in the garage and I pulled out all the instructions and put together the 50 pieces of wood and the 200 little nuts, bolts and screws. And there it was, eight feet wide, six feet tall, all built for mom and dad. And I was very proud of myself. And then in that moment, I realized, oh, I built it in the garage and they wanted it in the living room. And so for the next hour, I literally inched that thing out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, family room, utility room, kitchen, into the living room. My 10-year-old memory says I didn't harm it a bit. Set up mom's knickknacks, dad's books, and I had the stereo all wired up and playing mom's favorite album when they walked in the door. And she cried. Aww. And my dad was amazed. 
And in that story is joy. Joy is actually serving others with the work of your heart, your hand, your mind. Joy is working on something very long and hard to the delight of others. And I realized that that's what I've been pursuing in my career. I wasn't doing this for personal achievement. I was doing this because ultimately our work as engineers, if we do it well, if we, if we hit the pinnacle of what we're pursuing, it will one day deliver to the world. Some others will use it who don't even know who you are. But if they find out, they thank you. They, they say, you changed my life for the better. You, you, right. you made my life better with what you created. Thank you. And that is where joy comes from. I believe this idea of not only servant leadership within your organization, but looking even past customers and stakeholders and employees, looking out into the world, say, who do we serve and what would delight look like for them? And can we do this in a way that actually raises the human energy of our team at the same time? It doesn't break them down and doesn't make them feel like, yes, we accomplished it, but now we're burned out. Now we can't do anything else because it was too hard or it was too uh, extracting of our of our soul to, uh, to, to create this. And there's just too many people in their work lives who go through that, never experience that joy, and yet come out kind of a husk of what they used to be when they went in, lose sight of their own life's purpose and why they were doing what they were doing. So for me, that's the essence of the message I'm trying to bring to the world is we can do this with our human teams. Let's pause for a commercial break. You've been listening to The Game Changer, sponsored by Travelling to Give. For more information about our smart event tools that give back with each trip, visit travelingtogive.com. As you were telling me that story, I was picturing in, in my own life when someone has done something for me. And I think of my own son, who you know is very enterprising. And the natural tendency when someone does do something of say, oh, you, you know, you missed this corner, right? You did that. And I think about uh, when we are focused on pointing out the, the lack, yeah. right? We don't allow the other person to experience that full joy of, oh my God, this is amazing. And, and I think in my own leadership style, how often that may have occurred without me intending that in my heart. So let's talk about the characteristics of joyful leaders. And I suspect you have some stories to go along uh, with each of these characteristics. And I didn't ask you when we started, if you have a hard stop at any particular time. So are we I don't. okay? Yep. All right, Doing good. Okay. Then, I, then I'd like to actually take the time to go through these because this is such an important topic I don't want to breeze through. So the very first one is about being authentic. So can you uh, share with us the example of somebody maybe who wasn't authentic and learned how to be authentic? You know, I think in our work lives, um, we often are taught, you know, because I think a lot of our, you know, how many leaders actually take any kind of formal leadership training, right? How do we, how do we learn to become leaders? And, uh, and I don't mean just bosses and, you know, the hierarchical positional authority, but le literally leading other people. And I would guess most of us have learned to become leaders by watching the people above us. This very close circle of people who maybe elevated us into a new position, put us in charge of other people and so on. And, you know, some of us can be very fortunate to have 
great examples, but I'm guessing most are mediocre because their, their leadership lives were grown out of mediocrity. And so we don't necessarily have really great examples of this. And I think, you know, particularly, um, uh, you know, over the last many decades, I think what a lot of lessons we've all gotten as leaders is, oh, leave your, leave your real self at home, put on your mask, come to work, project authority, project, uh, you know, confidence and project, um, I've got the answer on this. You know, most of us got elevated because we were seen as the smartest guy or gal in the room. Right. And how did we do that? We probably drowned out the voices of others, right? We probably didn't listen as well as we should have. Um, you know, we can look back now and lament that, but maybe that's how we got ahead because that's how our bosses got ahead and so on and so forth. And we just think that's the way of the world. So we end up living this kind of dual life where we have a life at home and that's kind of left behind. And we try and pretend at work we don't actually have that life at home, right? How much of us deny uh, the pieces of our life. We don't necessarily talk much about our families or the challenges we face or maybe some of the harder moments of raising kids or taking care of aging parents or something like that. And so I really thought hard about this. And I the, the message was really driven home to me um, when we had a nonprofit group come into Menlo. And um, this is a group called Ellie's Place. And they care for grieving teens and children who've lost either a parent or a sibling. So it's one of these wonderful places you can go to process your grief. And they haven't existed for a long time. So most people process this grief, whether you're young or old, in, in private. And this is this group that, that gathers, particularly children together, kids under 18 years old, who've lost a dear loved one somewhere in their lives, and they don't know how to process the grief. And they talked about an exercise they used to help teens process their grief because teens are harder. They're trying to put up that hard outer shell. Right. And so the teens grab these plastic masks and they write on the outside of the mask how they want the world to see them. And they'd write things like, I'm okay now. I've moved on. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to get back to my life again. You know, I'm, you know, you don't need to worry about me anymore. But on the inside of their mask, they talk about how they're really feeling. And so while everyone around the table, the other teens can see, you know, all those positive uh, kind of I've got this now messages on the inside of their mask, they're writing how they really feel. They'll write, why, God, mm. I'm so angry. I'm so sad. When will the pain go away? I miss my mom. I miss my dad. You know, there maybe there's guilt. And then they turn the masks around and show them to each other and you find wow. out they find out how all the other teens are feeling exactly the same way they are and i realize this is kind of like those masks we leaders bring to work isn't it oh yeah no i was just thinking about the entrepreneurial mask yep i've <laughs> right. got this overnight okay. success <laughs> yeah we're you yeah. know we're, 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 you know, we've got the, we've got the upward sloping graphs that show we got this rocked. Right. And, and we're just, in some ways, we're afraid to show that mass to others. We're afraid to be too vulnerable. And uh, we're afraid to show that very human side. But in that gap is a place where we can really build a team, where we can really connect with one another, where we can really learn to care about each other, not just the employee, not just the colleague, not just the boss or the coworker or the, or the frontline worker, but 
but actually care about them in their whole lives. And I think this is where authenticity really comes in because I think we humans have a very keen sense of smell for authenticity. We know it when we can feel it and we know it when we can't. And people will follow an authentic leader. Right. Well, and, and the next one is, is one that I think is uh, equally rare and, and maybe for many of the same reasons. And, and that is being humble. And I was trying to think back of all of the bosses that I have had over the years. And, you know, I think the, the one who demonstrates humility the most is my current chairman of the board mm. uh, of my company. And, you know, I know his skills and I know how talented he is. Uh, and largely because he doesn't have to tell me every time, right? He doesn't have to remind me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so humility is, is something, uh, again, can you go from being someone who's not humble to learning how to take on this characteristic, which is mandatory before you can actually bring joy to the people around you? Well, that old saying, pride goeth before a fall, right? Uh, and pride is obviously uh, uh, that hubris that's the opposite of humble. And, you know, and I think a lot of these things I write about in the book are aspirational. I don't think it's possible to be elevated into a level of top leadership and actually be humble every minute of every day. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily the most human side of us either, but um you know, what I would, I, what I learned to trade away personally was uh, to stop being answer man, to stop being portraying this feeling like, if you need help, come to me, I will give you the answer as opposed to let me help you on your way, right? Uh, because if you build that hero-based model, which I was part of for the first 20 years of my career, and I was like number one hero, which feels great, Except you realize when you build teams on hero worship, you you can never go faster than the hero. Right. You know, I had built teams that couldn't move faster than me because they had to wait on me for an answer. And it wasn't until I learned to let go of that, become that humble leader, that um, uh, that my team was suddenly unleashed. They could run forward without me. I didn't have to take credit for everything they were accomplishing. It wasn't about me anymore. It was about me serving them. And, uh, you know, we've created this model of caring at Menlo where um, when we're having trouble with another person, and we all do from time to time, it's just our humanity, right? Maybe we brought in something from home that shows at work, but we don't actually know what's going on. We've just learned to ask each other in those moments, are you okay? Let's check in with the human first before we check in with the coworker. And, uh, and there was a time where... Uh, I'd had a particularly bad day the day before as a leader. And Tracy came in, one of my other top leaders in the team. And it was early in the morning. She pulled me aside and she said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. She said, are you okay? So she's using, you know, my teachings back on me. And I said, this is about yesterday, isn't it? She goes, yeah, that was really weird. That wasn't like you. I just wanted to make sure you were okay. And uh, who knows what it was that led to that sort of, you know, uh, uncharacteristic exchange between she and I and another young team member, new team member, Matt. And when Matt uh, came in the door right in the middle of that conversation that early morning, I called him over and I said, hey, Matt, why don't you come here? 
sit down for a second. I said, I just want to talk about yesterday and say, I'm sorry. And without missing a beat, Matt looks me in the eye and he says, I forgive you. And I thought, wow, here's one of our newest team members teaching me a great lesson about humility. Uh, So I think our ability for a well-placed apology as leaders is warranted and often uh, if we're trying to be seen with that mask on, it's like, I've got this, you know, follow me because I know the right way. It's very seldom we're going to feel uh, we can be vulnerable enough to just simply say without a but after it, I'm sorry, I'll try and be better next time. And I think that when we can cross that bridge as leaders, we crossed a very important bridge with our team. That is so powerful. And, you know, this leads right into the next one, which is, is loving, which again, we don't think about the term love uh, when we think about our leaders. Now I can go back and talk about people that I've really loved working for, but that, that is more the verb of, of, of loving as an action, right. Rather than demonstrating love and, and really that, that touching of hearts together, uh, which is rare uh, in, in the marketplace. So uh, again, how, how do you nurture that? And, and really, I mean, I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that it's giving people permission to do what they do in their personal lives quite naturally. Yep. Yeah, this was, uh, <laughs> you know, when you write business books, you're, you're trying to capture an audience, you're trying to touch a uh, uh, a chord with them that you hope will lead to them reading the books and being moved by them. And it was bold enough for me to write a book that had the word joy on the cover, right? Twice. <laughs> but then to go further, double down on the bet and put in a chapter on leadership about leaders are loving. And I was, I, I tell you, I felt like I was walking out on a, uh, on an edge of a, of a, of a, um, uh, of a cliff there saying, do you really want to do this? Do you want to go this far with this audience? And I will tell you of all the interviews I've had about chief joy officer, this chapter is what draws people in the most. And, um, you know, I was, it was interesting. It was actually an interaction. This chapter was supposed to be called gentle. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my original intention. And I used a fable of the North Wind and the Sun, Aesop's fable, of where, um, you know, the wind tried to blow the traveler's coat off and tried as hard as he could. The sun said, well, let me try and came out with all of his warmth and sunshine and the traveler just peeled off their coat willingly. And uh, my editor pushed back on me, said, too, too overworked a story, Rich. I want you to keep pushing on this. And one of our team members, Lee, said, heck, ask me more about this. What does it mean? to be a gentle leader. And, uh, and I started pulling out the opposites. That means don't be cruel. Don't be mean. Don't be this. And I said, and then I came on loving and I took that uh, famous chapter out of first Corinthians about love. Right. You know, and, uh, and I started breaking it down as to what does it mean to be a loving, caring leader and going through all the examples of that. And uh, I'm, Delighted to say this chapter has uh, uh, has changed a lot of uh, hearts and minds about leadership. Mm. Well, it, I, I know how very important it is. And I, I think it's much easier as a female leader to embrace this one because uh, we've already 
um, in, in many ways, women have already gotten past some of those, you know, I've got to show this hard exterior and we're more yep. willing to show who we are, which makes us feel more vulnerable, of course. But I want to move on to the next one, which you covered in your introduction about yourself. And, and I absolutely know this to be true about you. So I'm not surprised that this is on the list, but being optimistic. And right now, uh, in fact, yesterday I was having to write a, a note to my investors and to my advisory board, which I call my sounding board, uh, about the fact that in my tech business right now, we're, we're pausing the company for a little while because we rely on a healthy travel and events industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't, don't have to, uh, to tell anybody what, what that part of our world looks like right now. Um, but I really wanted to still be able to be optimistic in that. And so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to write an article on optimism today and post it on, on that community because um, it is so important, especially in difficult times. Oh, yes. To remain optimistic. And, but to have it come from a, a place of reality and not just the pie in the sky Pollyanna, right? Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, we all go through these times, uh, and obviously, probably everybody's going through a time right now, except maybe the companies that build technology like Zoom. Uh, it's been a difficult economic time for the, for the world, uh, and obviously a difficult time in health and safety and all that sort of thing. So, um, but there's no question that uh, optimism has a place in leadership. And as you said, it's not the uh, pie in the sky, Pollyannish, it's all going to be okay, that sort of thing, uh, even though if I don't know how. But it's about putting the pieces in place that allow you to believe that, A, either you have picked a good plan and you're going to be able to move forward with it despite the headwinds, or if you're not, you've put all the other pieces in place that says, well, if we have to, we'll adjust, but we'll get through this together. And, um, you know, we've been through now many versions of this at Menlo. Uh, we started about six months before 9-11, a couple of wars, 2008. We saw a similar <laughs> right. kind of pre-election crisis in 2016. And now what we're going through now. And, um, and we made it through all of them. And, and I, even this time, I mean, I'm, I'm watching our team come together. Um, we've adopted this rallying cry for the time we're going through right now called Thrive Again. And it's not just, well, let's get back to thriving again. It's, no, what's the sequence that's going to allow us to get there? What's the plan? And so we described it in five steps, and we're at step four of five now, and we feel very good about how things are going. It was survive. So we had to do a number of things, just like you're describing. Got to survive. Adapt right? We have to change. We have to recognize that the way we always did things probably won't work right now. Um, sustain. So get back to a nice steadying place so things feel calm. And then the next one is so important. Emerge stronger. This is actually a term I'd gotten from Patrick Lencioni in a conference he did right after right. the pandemic began. And he said, there's, you know, there's going to be companies that make it and companies that don't just a fact of life in these kind of times. But the companies that make it, when we come through the other side, they will either emerge stronger or weaker. And that is actually a choice of leadership. Right. And he said, the moves you start making right now, double down on your efforts. So, you know, what we would call joy, invest in your team, do the things to build them up, try new things, run experiments. Don't just sit back and, you know, 
pretend everything's okay and move on, but ra rather, you know, run big experiments right now, double down on your investment. And we are well into the Emerge Stronger piece. What I've seen our team do over the last six months is just so gratifying, so mind boggling. And they got there ahead of me. I mean, I was reeling from this big change because this had big implications for Menlo oh, to not be able to work in a big room together, uh, to all work, be working from home and uh, right. not entertain our three or 4,000 guests and visitors who come every year to see how we do what we do. And we are definitely in the Emerge Stronger phase. A number of experiments we're running that are being successful are just, just incredible. We're not back to Thrive again yet, but all the pieces and parts and, are in And place. so is that number five, is Thrive yep, that's again? number five, is Thrive again. And, and we'll celebrate, you know, that the team is, uh, the team knows where we're headed. They know, you know, they have the sense of how we're going to get there. And, you know, and there's, you know, there's a lot of optimism that is just about coming in every day and facing what you're facing. Yeah. Not, don't cower from it. Don't, don't feel or, you know, act defeated. Just say, you know, what do we need to do today? What's one, what's the next step in front of this one? I love it. And, and that takes you again to the next one, which is being the visionary, because being able to envision even at the survive place and, and, you know, I would say my company has already gone through some of those. Um, but it's, I, I think because I am such a strong visionary, and, and that really is one of my superpowers is I see problem and solution side by side, right? It, it's not a, a process for me. It's, it's, I'm, I see actually many, many solutions, which is why I named my company solutions, right? Uh, and, and so I think that visionary piece actually helps to have joy because it, I can't imagine those people who don't have that ability to see the thriving again stage and what that even begins to look like. And I'm not even sure I'm thinking big enough right? Uh, so that's what I push myself to. But I'm going to ask you to tie together um, the next two, which is being a visionary and also at the same time being grounded in reality. Because again, there are two kinds of visionaries, those that are so far into the future that nobody is along with them, right? And others who are just constantly pushing, you know, when you reach one thing, they're pushing out the vision further and further and further. So talk to me about that. Yeah, and I'll draw in a later piece in the book that is uh, connected to both of those, and it's this this idea of leader leaders as storytellers. You know, storytelling is a big piece. My card says chief storyteller on it, but we have many storytellers on the team. Envisioning is a form of storytelling. Many stories we tell are the stories of our past, whether painful or delightful. Uh, you know, it's the stories we would tell around campfires or totems when we were, you know, in the earliest days of humanity's existence. Uh, they're buried in anthems of nations and that sort of thing. And it's important to curate those old stories to be reminded of how, why are we here? How did we get here? What, what are our most important values? But visioning is telling a story that people can connect to about the future. Mm -hmm. Visioning is, you know, taking the the charts and the graphs that we love to display in boardrooms and the and the hockey stick, you know, uh, revenue curves and all that kind of stuff, which most people just glaze over, you know, gloss, you know, they 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 become insensitive to those kind of things. They don't really move hearts and minds. They don't connect to your soul and your spirit. Um, they don't connect concept to reality. But storytelling, storytelling about the future, telling a story that people can believe in, get on board with has to be exciting. It has to be something 
uh, that, you know, you can look at and say, I want to be part of that story. But yes, it always also has to be realistic. If you paint something too grand, um, you know, people will feel defeated right off the bat because they're like, well, we can never get there. I mean, that's just pie in the sky. So right. as leaders, we need to pull these things together. You know, it has to be achievable. It has to be something people can see and also see themselves being a part of. Right. You know, right. if it's because if, if it's such a grand story, they'll say, well, you know, Rich, good luck with that. <laughs> hope, hope you make it. <laughs> right. right. Uh, you know, I'll be right there with you cheering when you get to the goal line. Like, no, no, we need to do this together. And so uh, it has to be in enough sort of conceivable, drippy detail that people can see, I see how I can play a part in helping make that happen. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, and then, of course, you come around full circle, I think, as, as you uh, finish this discussion of what are the characteristics of a joyful leader, and you come back to being a servant leader. And, you know, that is a term, uh, certainly, that those of us out of the Judeo-Christian culture, you know, we understand what that means, perhaps as a part of our faith, and we think about you know, the leaders of our, our church or synagogue or whatever, uh, you know, religious group we might be a part of, we think about them being servant leaders and about uh, uh, perhaps even we might take it so far as to understand that that's how husbands and wives should behave with one another. But, uh, I'm, you know, uh, like you said, we, we draw this box around the personal us and we walk out and we go to work and, and all of a sudden, that doesn't seem like something that you can take with you. So, so talk uh, a little bit about that before we go into talking about the culture, because I, I don't want to shortchange that discussion. Yeah, well, you know, I, I challenge people when they come to visit and they want to hear about the joy of Menlo and they want to know where it comes from and how do we get there. And, and uh, I immediately turn the tables on them and ask them a couple of key questions that I want them to think hard about. And it's, who do you serve and what would delight look like for them? Because I think the first part of servant leadership in leading others is to give them a sense of the servant leadership they bring to the world. And when I ask these two questions, who do you serve and what would delight look like for them? I then take the three easiest answers off the table. Employees, customers, and shareholders. And I say, of course you have to serve them, but serving them is still self-serving. Look past them. What would delight look like for them? And, and so in Menlo's example, we have a, we have, of course, you know, I will say it's easy because we think about it all the time to talk about it. We serve the end users of the software that we're building. Right. Those are people who never meet us. They are not our customers because they don't pay us for what we do. They probably don't even know we exist, right? We create some business software. Somebody brings it out to the world and releases it to either their internal employees or external customers of their products. And then people touch that work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. And they're like, I love this. You made my life better because of this. And if they find out about us and they tell us those stories, that is joy for us. Well, I think, you know, building that kind of purpose-filled joy into an organization also sets a mindset among the leaders of how do we serve each other? How do we ask those questions? Uh, you know, how, how are you okay? How can I care for you? Um, and so 
Yeah, I like this story that's, again, an old story that uh, you've probably heard lots of times, but I take a slightly different twist on it. And it's the story of the three bricklayers that someone came upon one day and they asked the first bricklayer, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm laying bricks. Like, what do you think I'm doing? And he goes to the second builder and says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm building a wall, a little bit slightly bigger vision. And then the third bricklayer, he says, oh, I'm building a cathedral. Now, the interesting part of that story for me, given the time frames where, you know, men were laying bricks to build cathedrals, they, sometimes those cathedrals would take 150 years to build. Right, right. So they wouldn't even see the finish. They part. wouldn't see it. They wouldn't worship there. They wouldn't bring their family there, baptize their children there, bury their loved ones out of that cathedral. So the, the servant leadership present in this person who's laying bricks for that future right? That um, uh, I think is what really drives us. I, I think humans are built for three basic functions. <laughs> Number one, we are built to work and we are built to work hard. Everything about us is satisfied by working. Mm -hmm. We are built to work in community with one another. We are at our best when we are literally engaged with each other on working on something and working on something bigger than ourselves. That that's, that's what drives us. Work, working together and working on something bigger than ourselves. Something that will outlast us. Uh, I even think now, uh, uh, it hit me one day uh, that these books I've written will outlive me. They'll be on shelves. My great-great-grandchildren could read these books and hear my stories. And, and you realize that in, in writing books, uh, and now I've even gotten to read the second one. I, I did the audible version for it. Um, that I will, this will live on past me. Right. That there will be someone who'll be touched by the thoughts I've had at this point and long after I'm uh, gone. And I think this idea of servant leadership is uh, the most satisfying kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. It's a kind where you can step back, be humble let others go in front of you, help them succeed uh, in ways that maybe they had never imagined. Right. And that really, I mean, what you just described is building that culture of joyful leadership. And again, we don't have time to go through each one in the same level of detail that we did, but I, I thought it more important to focus on what builds a great leader. And of course, we want to still give people a reason uh, to buy the book. And, and there, there is certainly plenty of reason as we each dig down deep into our own behavior as leaders and, and really measure ourselves against these but I'm just going to walk through uh, the elements of building a culture of joyful leadership. And, and again, you've already touched on some of these, starting with a purpose, uh, being a value-based leader, not a boss, right? Uh, pursuing systems for the sake of what, what they can produce, not uh, bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy, really caring for your team, you know, leveraging, being loving and being a servant leader. Um, you know, going, going in and actually learning together, which is part of that humility and being authentic of that you don't necessarily have all the answers, or maybe you have one answer, but it's not the best answer. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you talked about becoming a storyteller. And uh, the thing I love about the conclusion of this book, and this is really what I'm, I'm, and I'm not even struggling with it, I'm excited about the opportunity 
of looking at what I am supposed to be doing as bigger than, than myself, right? And, and the original vision of my current tech company was what that product could do and realizing that, you know, there may be just a bigger vision that I wasn't thinking big enough. And so I needed this reset, you know, in, in myself. So why don't I uh, have you just talk about the bigger than ourselves uh, conclusion of this book and then uh, uh, talk just a little bit about the positive organization that you touch on in your epilogue of the book. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll summarize a, a lot of this in a, um, in, in a model that has actually developed after I wrote the book, but based on the content. I think it would be one that'll leave your listeners with a good mental picture of how to think about how do we get our organizations off the ground uh, and get them flying the heights and distances that were previously unimaginable, because that's really what we want to do. Right. That's that's almost the human pursuit. If you think about just the basic human pursuit of flight over all the centuries. Right. You know, men strapping feathered wings to their arms and leaping off of cliffs to disastrous results or the story of uh, uh, Icarus and Daedalus uh, trying to, you know, with the wax wings and getting too close to the sun, all this sort of thing. Um, if you think of an organization like an airplane and the forces at work on an aircraft, there's lift, there's weight, there's thrust, and there's drag. And I compare these to the forces that work on a human organization, the lift of human energy, the, the weight of bureaucracy that confounds it, the thrust of purpose that pulls us forward through even tough weather, and the drag of fear that holds us back. And then I use this as a setting for comparing uh, the first man-powered flight of the Wright brothers back in 1903. And then after they achieved that, which was, a, you know, an incredible achievement by, you know, all human standards, this was, you know, we've been wanting to fly as birds since the first time we saw a bird. Right. right. And, um, and Orville Wright was quoted after shortly after that achievement that we would never be able to carry Two people, more than two people on an aircraft. It's just not physically possible. So you think about, here's the inventor of the aircraft, right? And already constraining, already saying, that's it, two people. Don't, don't get too excited about this. It's, it's clever, of course. We've achieved something great, but two people. How do I know this? I read it in a book on his life. I read it in a book on a 747 to London. 100 <laughs> passengers, 50,000 gallons of fuel. Fifty thousand, you know, thirty-five thousand feet, flying at five hundred miles an hour. And my point is, the first seven forty-seven flew, by the way, in nineteen sixty-nine. That was a scant twenty-one years after Orville Wright passed away. Almost in the context of his lifetime, this happened. Mm. And my point is, once we discover the relevant principles of flight, either for airplanes or for our organizations we can indeed fly to heights and distances that were previously unimaginable, even for us founders, right? right? And this is, I think, what people want. This is what they desire in their lives. They want to say, I was part of that, right? right? You think of all of, you know, the, the pursuit of humankind throughout all the centuries, whether it was sailing to lands unseen, whether it was, you know, going to the moon and safely back or the things that we're doing now in space, there is just this inexorable march of mankind to pursue those things that are what we dream of, what we hope for, 
And maybe we accomplish them in our lives, or maybe we set others on the destination to accomplish them beyond us. But I think this is what really drives us. And if we forget about that, we will not be able to get our team to a place and a culture of joyful leadership. Mm. Well, I will tell you, you were exactly what the doctor ordered for me today. I really needed to hear uh, a lot of these messages. I'm in the process of, of kind of recrafting my, not only my company, but, uh, but my leadership team. And, and we have a, a absolute clean slate to create the kind of culture that we want. And this is no doubt the culture that I want to create. Uh, I want people to want to be a part of what I'm building and not just because we've got, you know, a cool idea and a cool technology. Um, but, but that this really is a way to fly those heights and distances that were previously unimagined. And Rich, I just thank you so much for taking so much time for being so generous, uh, with your time today. And I just wish you the best. Would you tell folks how they can learn more about what you're doing at Menlo and, uh, how they can, uh, best reach you? Uh, I would just suggest go to our website. All the details are there, www.menloinnovations.com, M-E-N-L-O. And uh, yeah, we have a lot of stories. There's actually a tab on there called stories. And uh, many of those stories are what we're going through right now and how we're um, fighting the fear that's operating inside of us during a pandemic. So I think your listeners may find great value in reading some of those stories and how we're oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And we don't have time to, to talk about what it is that Menlo does, but I will tell you, if you are early on in any venture and you need help on the development side, these guys have an amazing uh, process. And even though they're not all physically together, which used to be a part of the story, uh, you know, I'm quite certain that they're still producing the same kind of amazing results. So again, as, as I like so to say, we are physically distanced, but we are not socially distanced. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I will tell you, you are one of my favorite game changers, my man. And uh, I just, uh, just wish you uh, joy. And I know I don't even have to wish that on you because it's something that you live with daily. Uh, but thank you so much. And again, we have been talking to Rich Sheridan and uh, I would encourage you to go back and read his first book uh, as well. That book was called Joy Incorporated. And then at the same time, uh, I would buy a copy of Chief Joy Officer. And I didn't even have a chance to talk about the, the helmet on the hanging on the edge of, of Joy. But, uh, but if you, you read the probably... books, you'll find out why the Viking helmet's there. <laughs> right. Great. So again, the subtitle of the book is How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Thanks so much, Rich. Take care. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.